Previously on archaeology, <laughs> the Philistines won round one in a battle with Israel at Ebenezer. 4,000 Israelite soldiers lay scattered, headless and handless, on the battlefield. Israel flees to regroup and form a new plan of attack. The spiritual leaders remember the glory days with the ark. The ark of the covenant was there when they walked through dry ground at the Jordan. The ark was there when they marched around Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. They send for the ark in Shiloh. The ark arrives. The people rejoice. They viewed the ark like a military superweapon. The ark was Israel's most holy artifact. They brought it out to the battle. They went into round two with much more confidence. However, the same result pursued. This time, 30,000 soldiers are added to the previous 4,000 dead on the battlefield. The Philistines cut their heads and hands off to get the correct body count. Israel left Ebenezer with their tails between their legs, running back to their homes. A phrase meaning they broke military formation and scattered. The Philistines left Ebenezer not only with 30,000 heads and hands hanging from their belts, but they also left with a trophy of war, the ark. Israel had to learn a few lessons. The first being you can't put God in a box. They failed to distinguish between the presence of God and the symbols of the presence of God. God didn't live in the box. He simply used the box to represent his presence not guarantee it. The next lesson they had to learn was that you can't manipulate God's power. God is no domesticated deity who does what we want, when we want, to whom we want. God used this opportunity not only to teach the Israelites something about himself, but also to teach the Philistines something about himself. The Philistines put the ark in the temple of Dagon, their national god. They placed little deities of tribes they defeated next to Dagon as a conquered relic. They would not deny that this image or statue, or in this case, the ark, is a god, but he's less than, submissive to Dagon. They open the temple the next morning so the crowds can view the new less than deity, the conquered relic, and they are likely walking past mounds of Israelite heads and hands on their way into the temple. They step into the temple and find Dagon's head and hands cut off. What they did to Jehovah's people, Jehovah did to their God. This shook the city, but it was nothing compared to what God would do next. Husbands in Philistia asked their wives, Do you, do you feel a little, a little lump forming in my neck? Wives would say to their husbands, do you, do you see a little bulge under my arm? These were not slow-growing tumors. They were not there in the morning and full-grown by the evening. God gave the entire city tumors. The ark had fallen into their hands, but really, they had fallen into the hands of God. God's glory box marched through the Philistine territory on a victory tour. See, God took Israel and the Philistines to school. He had lessons for everybody. God said to Israel, I will not permit you to use the ark like a magic wand, but I also will not allow the Philistines to demean me like a trophy of war. 
The Israelites' view of God, too small. The Philistines' view of God, too small. Jehovah is simply bigger than the Israelite or Philistine theological configuration of him. Now, notice chapter 6, verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Seven months. People were dying. People were ending their lives because of the tumor pain. The leaders of the Philistines kept sending it to another city in the territory. But wherever the ark went, the tumors bulged. Verse 2. And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? They sought supernatural guidance from pagan counselors. Uh, consensus among the citizens and the pagan spiritual counselors was clear. Send it back. Wave the white flag. Throw in the towel. Verse 3. They said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him, that's Jehovah, a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. Now let me just point out, the Philistines were deeply religious people. There was no such thing as atheism in the original world. It's built into the heart of man to worship a deity. It's built into the heart of man to appease a deity. That's why you can go to tribes that have never been contacted by the outside world and they are making sacrifices. They are untouched by the Western world, yet know that they are sinners and their sin must be paid for. Atheists are like characters in a novel denying that the author exists. These pagans knew that they were guilty and they needed to send a guilt offering. The Philistines' pagan spiritual advisors are saying, repent. They are saying, you have sins that must be atoned for. Verse 4, the Philistines said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? The spiritual advisors answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Now you may remember that the Philistines, these sea peoples from Crete, wanted more land. So they invaded the Mediterranean coast. They set up a pentopolis, a region controlled by five cities. And each city was ruled by a lord. The pagan spiritualists recommend an offering of five tumors and five mice to represent the five cities and the five lords. The offering, they figure, must correspond in some way to the punishment. Uh, they, they say, don't just dump the ark on them, pay compensation. Okay, what exactly would make for adequate compensation? They realize payment for sin must be costly, so they send payment in gold. Their instinct in offering costly materials was right, but their estimation of the cost of forgiveness was simply too low. It was Peter in the New Testament who said, forgiveness can't be purchased by perishable things like silver and gold but only by the precious blood of Christ. When you don't know the scriptures, you will do all types of forbidden things in seeking to atone for your sins. 
They wrongly thought God could be appeased by gold. But he can only be appeased by blood. It's right there in the ark for them. That's what the box points to. Now the objects that they are to use their creative abilities to fashion are a bit humorous. They ask, what should we give Jehovah? I don't know. What about tumors? He gave us tumors. Let's give him some tumors. So they make gold replicas of tumors. Next, mice. Remember last week when I said that I think the tumors were likely some form of the bubonic plague? Well, this is why I said it. The narrator reveals for the first time this little piece of information that it wasn't just tumors ravaging the land. It was also mice. In your fields, mice. In your house, mice. In your bed, mice. All over everywhere, mice. Historians believe the infestation of mice carried the bubonic plague which produced these tumors. And this is why they are sending not little plastic mice back with the ark, but gold mice. By the way, mice were detestable animals, forbidden in offerings according to Leviticus 19. They were unclean animals, rodents. But again, when you try to appease the wrath of God by your own means, you just heap up more and more violations. Their, their present reveals both insight and ignorance. Insight, this God must be appeased. Ignorance, let's do it with tumors and rats. Notice what the pagan spiritual advisors say in verse 6. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After Jehovah had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away? Church, this whole event is nothing less than a plague. The Philistines are viewing it like God sending plagues on Egypt years before. In fact, they use the very word plague in verse 4. God plagued Egypt with frogs and flies and boils. He plagues the Philistines with mice and tumors. The verb send away in this verse is the same verb used by Pharaoh in Egypt. God plaguing Israel's enemy, enemies to bring them out of Egypt was well known beyond the borders of Israel. Philistine children heard of these stories in school. God kept pounding Egypt until they released his people. What's happening here? God keeps pounding Philistia until they release his ark. Don't be stubborn like the Egyptians, you Philistines. This whole event is an echo of Exodus. The storyline follows the same sequence of events. The ark went into captivity like Israel went into captivity. By the way, I, I don't have any sermon points today. I'm just teaching through the narrative. And I know some of you are highly disappointed by that. So to make up for it, I'm bringing you a chart. <laughs> Let's look at Israel's exodus and the ark's exodus. Israel was captured by enemies. The ark was captured by enemies. Israel was captive in a foreign land, Egypt. The ark was captive in a foreign land, Philistia. Plagues were sent out in Egypt. Plagues were sent out in Philistia. 
The first plague in Egypt lasted seven days. The tumor plague lasted seven months. Israel was instructed to carry gold on their way out. The ark carried gold on its way out. Let's put this event in the whole scope of redemptive history. This time, instead of Israel going into exile, the ark did. Jehovah went into exile, taking on the curse of the covenant for his people. And while in exile, Lightheart points out that he fought for them and defeated the gods of Philistia. Ichabod, God's glory has departed. Ready to go. God's glory went into exile. Psalm 78 describes how the ark went into exile and how God brought it out. Rarely do I ever... um, quote another passage when I'm, when I'm in a particular passage. I just like to marinate in that. But I want to read for you Psalm 78. You don't have to turn. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it on the screens. Psalm 78, verse 60. God forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. It's describing this event. God forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. That's the city where the ark was originally located. The tent where he dwelt among mankind. That's the tabernacle that housed the ark. God forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. That's the Philistines. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Yeah, I'd say he vented his wrath. 34,000 dead at Ebenezer during round one and two of the battle. 64, their priest fell by the sword. This happened, Hophni and Phinehas. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting. And he put his adversaries to rout, and he put them to everlasting shame. How did he do that? With tumors and mice. 1 Samuel 6, beginning in verse 7, gives the Philistines plan. They will transport the ark on a new ox cart. They will attach the cart to two reproduction cows. You could say dairy cows. Not work cattle, not field cattle, but dairy cattle. These two cows had never been yoked before. Never pulled any kind of wagon before. In addition, they will leave their nursing babies, their newborn calves in the barn. The Philistines will put the ark on the cart and then place the five golden tumors and the five golden mice in a little box beside the ark. Then they will send it back to Israel. Now, let me tell you why this should not work. Number one, they are devoid of experience. They, the cows, they are devoid of experience. It took training to teach cows to pull a cart in unison. Two cows pulling a cart straight the first time they were yoked would have been unheard of. Number two, the natural instinct for the mother cows would be to turn around and find their babies whom they hear crying after them. Mother cows and their nursing calves are practically inseparable. These mama cows have swollen udders. They need to be emptied. By the way, weaning is a theme throughout the book. Remember, Samuel wasn't yet weaned. Now these calves are not yet weaned. Number three, no one would accompany the cows to show them where to go. And the cows did not have GPS. The text says they went up the hill. 
99 degrees where they could go wrong and one degree where they could go right. Verse 12. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. That's lowing for their babies but not turning around. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Meaning the five leaders of these five Philistine cities followed from a distance. Uh, the, the Bible book, Numbers, Numbers 7, forbid the transport of the ark on a cart. It had to be carried by hand. But it's no surprise these pagans missed that. When the ark finally crossed over into Israelite territory, it crossed over in Beth Shemesh, a farming community. The whole town was working in the field harvesting wheat. This wasn't the job of just a group of people, but the whole community. Imagine Farmer Steve in his combine, chewing snuff and listening to country music. Then suddenly he sees two cows carrying the bright gold box, the Ark of the Covenant. It's glimmering in the sun. The whole town runs out to meet the Ark. The Ark has returned. It's back. The sign of God's presence has returned. Glory has returned. And it had nothing to do with them. Israel didn't go out and capture the ark. God did. God returns home in victory. The town immediately begins to spread the news. They send out messengers to the surrounding Israelite tribes. God's glory has returned. Since Shiloh has been destroyed, they use a large rock as an altar and begin preparing a sacrifice. They tore the, they tore the new cart to pieces, then chopped up the wood and sacrificed the two mother cows as a burnt offering to God. Church, it's vital that you understand. Even though the ark returned, the prevailing spiritual atmosphere remained. Leviticus chapter 1 verse 3 required all burnt offerings to be male. But this village sacrificed cows, females, when they should have sacrificed bulls. It's interesting to note that the ark returned to Beth Shemesh. This was the town inherited by the Levites, priests. If anyone knew how to sacrifice, it should have been this tribe. If anyone knew how to handle the ark, it should have been this town. But it appears they grew casual around God's ark. Verse 19, And God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Now, there's a debate about what took place at this event. The ancient historian Josephus believed that some residents opened the ark and looked inside. We have a replica of the ark at our home. And the other night, one of my boys was opening it. And then, and then I just hear yelling and running, and, and it's one of his brothers yelling, Don't open the ark! You will die! <laughs> and... Um, some of you are like, Kyle, of course. I already knew that. I learned that from watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. No. 
There's absolutely nothing in that movie that will help you understand the arc narrative. I beg you, don't get your theology from Steven Spielberg. Get it from the Bible. Now, other scholars seem to think that these 70 men didn't look inside, but that they simply touched it. And that's possible as well because years after this text, there's another account of King David eventually bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. And one of the men carrying the ark, Uzzah, saw it swaying and thought, it's going to fall. So he touched it to steady it. He touched it against God's law. He touched it because he thought his hand was less dirty than the dirt. He found out differently. He died. Still, other scholars believe it was just gazing upon the ark like a tourist attraction that killed these men. The ark was supposed to be covered with animal skin so you, you could not behold the glory. Numbers chapter, five, Numbers chapter 4 verse 5 walks that out. Now, one of these three happened. Either they opened it or they touched it or they gazed upon it. It doesn't really matter. The point is they grew casual with the ark, familiar with it. They no longer treated it with weight. It didn't make them tremble. They no longer regarded the weightiness of God. They forgot that God was dangerous. That his holiness is deadly. It's so easy to become accustomed to God that you lose your awe of him. You forget the nuclear power of his glory. When I became the preaching pastor here, I wanted us to grab hold of, well, there are different names for the same thing, but I wanted us to behold the sovereignty of God. Or maybe phrased like this, I wanted us to have a big God theology. Here's what I'm saying. We preach God heavy. Davis points out that this does not mean we cannot be intimate with God. It means we cannot be familiar with him. Intimacy is able to call him father and tremble at the same time. We don't have the ark anymore, but we can still fall into Israel's way of thinking. You are aware that even in churches, there is a de-godding of God happening. This casual, easygoing, light way to approach God. Light way to view God. An essential part of worship is to realize that you are sinful and God is holy. God isn't light. He's weighty. And we de-God him when we attempt to casualize him. Every Sunday, I try to get up here and show you the glory of God, the greatness of God, the incomprehensible God. I don't want you to take him lightly. Those of you that are non-Christians, you ask people in our church when they really saw the holiness of God for the first time, did it change them? Their marriage was never the same after that. Reading God's word was never the same after that. Listening to preaching was never the same after that. I, I remember the first time I heard big God preaching and I left saying, I want to do that for the rest of my life. A young couple in our church left recently. They moved to Texas. They messaged me and said, Faith Family Church has ruined us. I said, well, that's always good to hear. How did we do this? They messaged, I'll paraphrase. We now refuse to settle for small God preaching. 
And we're having a hard time finding a church that puts God forth as transcendent. This isn't personality in preaching. This isn't the pastor's personality. It's the weightiness of preaching the holiness of God. The last word of verse 20. God struck them with a great blow. That word blow is the same Hebrew word plague. What can a gold box, gold tumors, and gold rats teach us about New Testament Christianity? God plagued his own people when they refused to view him heavy. The whole town was in mourning, reeling under the hard blow from God and questioning, who can even stand before this God? Verse 21. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Now let's, let's trace the ark's movement on a map. The Israelites brought the ark from Shiloh and took it into battle at Ebenezer. They lost it in battle and the Philistines took it to Ashdod, their chief city. God dropped Dagon and sent tumors, so they passed the ark off to Gath. Same thing happened in Gath. So they sent it to Ekron. And this is when the Philistines decided to appease the wrath of God and send it back to Israel to the farming town of Beth Shemesh. Israel is going to do what the Philistines did. They're going to send the ark to another city. They are acting like the Philistines. They sent emissaries to Kiriath-Jerim, asking them to take the ark off their hands. They asked no questions like, what caused our people to die? No further thinking like, is it because we treated the ark of God again in a light way that more of our men are dead? No, none of that, none of that, nothing. They only see 70 laborers in the farming community now, the farming community now dead, so they send the ark away. Reminds me of when Jesus cast the demons into pigs. And the city was so concerned about the loss of pigs, they just wanted Jesus to leave. Send him away. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadad on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. This man, Eleazar, became the guardian of the ark. Verse 2 tells us it stayed in this city for 20 years. Now, church, where is the ark of the covenant now? We know David eventually moved it, but after that, we don't know. The ark kind of fades out of God's story. It completed its purpose. It pointed to Christ. It could have been captured by the Babylonians. It could have been destroyed. What you need to know while reading the Old Testament is that God doesn't live in church buildings or in any of its furnishings. The ark was a mere shadow and Jesus was the reality. The ark represented the presence of God. But the presence of God came to us fully, not in a box, but in a body. The only way you can stand before the presence of God and not be destroyed is if you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ.
Verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel. Now, now let's stop here. Wait a minute, church. Samuel has disappeared for the last three chapters. He's not mentioned in the narrative for 20 years. I call them the, the Samuel-less chapters. He was a boy when we left him. Now he's a full-grown man. We last saw him at age 12 in, in the Shiloh Tabernacle. Look at him. Dressing up like a priest. And let's just pinch his little cheeks. Don't do that anymore. He has a beard. He's in his likely mid-30s. And the time is ripe for God to put him back on center stage. Now is the opportune time. Now is the right moment to step forward and call a national convention. Samuel says in verse 3, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. One of my Old Testament profs in my doctoral program, Heath Thomas, uh, pointed out that verse 3 and the following are, are a beautiful picture of repentance. What does repentance look like in practical terms? Well, it looks like this. Number one, hearing what is wrong. That's actually listening when sin is pointed out from another person, uh, from the word. Actually listening when our sin is pointed out. Hearing what is wrong. Number two, recognizing the wrong. That's owning our sin and not deflecting or blaming it on others. Number three, realizing that God is right. Affirming God is right when he exposes my sin. Number four, confessing where we got it wrong. That's verbally acknowledging sin to God and confessing that it is wrong and displeasing to him. Our lead pastor, Daniel Hurd, was talking to me last week and said, whenever someone says, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that, that's not really an apology. Instead, they should say, I'm sorry, I did mean to say that. That's an apology. It's confessing where we got it wrong. Number five, turning to God and living for him. Turning away from sin and turning to the Lord. That's resolving in your heart to quit these sins. No half measures will do. This is what repentance is. It is possible to be painfully sorry for what you did but put no effort in to stop it in the future. Repentance moves beyond mere feelings and stirred emotions. It moves to actions. And what action was required of their repentance in the text? If they're truly serious about coming back to God, then they will clean house. Get rid of the foreign gods and goddesses. Ashtaroth was a female fertility deity, often represented in unclothed female figurines. Baal was the male deity. He was the storm god. This is an image of the storm god, Baal, uh, dating back to the 15th century B.C. 
It's a, it's a typical pose with the right hand raised over his head, gripping a weapon as if to call down a storm. They were to go home and break the images of Baal, tear down the vile statues of Ashtaroth, and smash them to pieces, whether they were private images or public ones. See, repentance involves more than simply being sorry for sin. There's a difference between feeling sorry for the impact our sins have caused and actually repenting of our sins. One is regret, the other is repentance. Repentance results in the exclusive worship of the one true God. Now, church, notice what you do not find in the text. You do not find a constant wallowing in past sins. Don't go on forever wallowing in your numberless failings. Have you confessed your sin? Then Jehovah is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. Claim that forgiveness and then walk away in mercy. Get up. God doesn't want you in perpetual mourning. You can be paralyzed by some kind of lament that seems holy, but it's actually self-absorbed. There is a mourning that never moves to, that never goes to moving. There are some big sins that Jehovah is forgiving right in our text. Yours aren't any bigger. Confess and believe what God said he would do when you repent. There is a corporate aspect to this repentance. Samuel is corporately calling a nation, a people of God, to collectively turn away from sin. I wanted to point that out because some of us like to tuck repentance away only in private and personal lives, and it's corporate here. When the community partakes of the same sins, then they participate in corporate repentance. There's almost like a reformation or revival taking place in the text. There's a renewed awareness of sin. Let your repentance be as well known as your sin. Let me point out to you non-Christians that are here that repentance doesn't save you. Jesus does. Alistair Begg says, repentance is not the cause. It is the condition in which God intervenes. There's no merit you see in repentance, but there is no saving help without that repentance. Non-Christian, repent of your sin and be saved. Look to the one who had no need to repent. Look to Christ. Look and live. On a human level, repentance is a choice. On a divine level, repentance is a gift. Verse 4. So the people of Israel put away the bells and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Apparently, this is a firm decision on the part of Israel for we do not read of people worshiping Baal again until the time of Ahab. It appears Israel did not worship Baal for close to 200 years after this corporate repentance. Verse 5, Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah. Mizpah means watchtower. It was, a, it was a hill, a vantage point that looked down. 
Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. The people of Israel went home, smashed their idols, and then they gathered at Mizpah once more as a separated people. And this is the emergence of Samuel as Israel's intercessor. While they're having this big time of worship on the hill, the Philistines heard. The Philistines always hear. The Philistines always know. The Philistines always come. They are suspicious that Israel is planning a sneak attack. Verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Notice that it's different this time. It's not like round one or round two. There is no brash or misplaced confidence in outward symbols. There is a genuine, even timid faith in the power of their God to save them from their enemies. One pastor said, desperation is never in trouble when it rests in omnipotence. Verse 9, and Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. And Samuel was offering up, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Bethkar. Remember, Israel is at Mizpah, that strategic military location on the hill. So they have the advantage of height and the double advantage of shooting arrows Poison-tipped arrows, according to Wycliffe. They struck the Philistines from Mizpah to Bethkar. Bethkar was a town name that meant house of the lamb. So while offering a lamb, the Israelites slew the Philistines even to the house of the lamb. Also remember that Baal was the storm god. But what happened when the Philistines attacked? A loud thunder. Jehovah reveals himself in a Baal-like manner. God says, I'm the true storm God. Now, one scholar, Bergen, says that the peoples in the Near East believe that every military conflict, every military combat involved a conflict being played out on two planes, the human terrestrial and the divine atmospheric. Any unusual meteorological phenomenon during a military operation would naturally be interpreted as evidence of a deity at work. This supernatural intervention on behalf of Israel made the Philistines scatter. They heard it as a bad omen. Uh, Mass confusion. They, They panicked. Hannah, Samuel's mother, in chapter 2, sang about this. The adversaries of the Lord against them, God will thunder in heaven. Israel didn't have a theology that said, I'm seeking the Lord, so I will have no attacks. No, they knew it was part of being the people of God. 
The moment they get right with God, they face a battle. How are the Philistines routed? By the power of prayer. Their victory was secured through prayer. God heard the cries of his people through Samuel and he came to their rescue. Verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Now, there is an area, I want you to stay with me here because it can get confusing. There is an area called Ebenezer and now Samuel takes a rock and names it Ebenezer. Who names a rock? E Ebenezer, the area, is where Israel was routed 20 years earlier. That's where the graves of 34,000 headless and handless Israelites lay. That's where the Ark of the Covenant went into enemy hands. The Philistines won and God's people lost. Israel, the area, is many miles northwest of where Samuel sets up this memorial rock and names it Ebenezer. Ebenezer, the area, place of defeat. Ebenezer, the rock, place of victory. Ebenezer, the area, round one, lost it to the Philistines. Round two, lost it to the Philistines. Ebenezer, the rock, the place of victory. Round three, Israel gets victory. Samuel is not the first to set up a rock memorial. Jacob set up a memorial at Bethel. Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan. Samuel is continuing an old and sacred tradition of marking the time and place where God came through. Samuel wanted the people to remember, not just for a few days, but for years, for decades, for generations, how God had come to rescue his people when they humbled themselves before them. This is a grace memorial. He sets up this stone as a standing witness to the fact that God stepped in when everyone wouldn't have blamed him for stepping out. They were vulnerable with their enemies approaching they did not deserve God's rescue, having been chronologically unfaithful. And yet, Jehovah in his, in his gracious fidelity to his covenant people helped. Samuel defines Ebenezer for us. He says it means, till now the Lord has helped us. The old King Jimmy translates it differently. It says, hitherto. Has the Lord helped us? The word till or hither or hitherto has a hand pointing in that direction. Look back. You have to read this word looking backward. Back to the chain of mercies that God led you to your current position. Ebenezer the rock was one link and a long chain of mercies. Israel's exodus from Egypt, that was a link. The ark's exodus from Philistia was another link. The victorious battle at Mizpah was another link. All links in a chain, all Ebenezer's. Do you, do, do you have a history of God seeing you through? In a sense, you must live in the past if you're going to be able to remember Jehovah's mercies and be able to sing about them. 
Tuck this away. You move forward by looking backwards. We have a FFC church history that we're working on. It's a book with pictures and dates and we are marking the times and places where God came through for us. You need to do this personally. Itemize those times and places. Journal them out when God came through for you. Those moments where if he didn't give you help, you would have been headless and handless on the battlefield. We all have our Ebenezer stories, our scrapbook of memories. Get into the habit of marking the times and places when God came through for you. The Philistines learned their lesson and they stayed home. No more border crossing. And God was hard on the Philistines all through Samuel's lifetime. A couple verses here, verse 14. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath. Remember, those were two of the five cities in the Petopolis. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Israel apparently freed the surrounding countryside from Philistine control. They brought Philistine cities back under their control. And they signed a mutual non-aggression pact with the Amorites. There's peace on every side. Verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Since Shiloh was destroyed, Samuel traveled a circuit. As he traveled the circuit, he passed that Ebenezer stone trip after trip. <laughs> Church, there's, there's no telling how many times I've sang the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and really had no clue what it meant, the second verse, when it said, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. I'm like, I believe it. I don't know what it, what it means, but I believe it. The Hebrew word Ebenezer may be the least known lyric among all the most, among all the, the most beloved English hymns. But what a grace-rich, gospel-soaked symbol Ebenezer is. We deserve nothing. Time and time again, we fail the Lord. We wander from the fold of God. Nevertheless, he constantly delivers us. Because of his covenant love, he persistently showers mercy and lavishes grace on ill-deserving sons and daughters like us. What makes the gospel so precious is that even when we act like Philistines, he pursues us. There, there must be a time when we set up Ebenezer's. And we must not forget that there was a time when God set up an Ebenezer. The mountain peak of God coming through for his people is the Ebenezer we call the cross. Jesus spilled his own blood to rescue us. Not from the Philistines, but from something far worse. Our sins. When we stand forgiven, we look to the cross and we say, Hither by thy help, I've come. It was all him and none of me. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. 
We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.